Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, the author of The Gettysburg Gospel, Gabor Borat. Gabor Borat, author of The Gettysburg Gospel, The Lincoln Speech That Nobody Knows. I thought everybody knew the Gettysburg Address. <laughs> everybody does, but there's plenty that people don't know. The title came about because I wished there were a more modest title, actually. My subtitle was uh, Lincoln Speaks, and my publisher said, well, people will say, why New Book on Lincoln? You better make it more catchy. And uh, I talked to a few colleagues, and there's so much new information in there that the subtitle is acceptable. What could be new about the Gettysburg Address? You know, I've lived in Gettysburg for 25 years. I've studied Lincoln all my life, and I was just amazed how much I didn't know. Basic facts. Let me give you a simple one. <coughs> the speech at Gettysburg is the first speech Abraham Lincoln wrote out before giving it since he became president, the first. I didn't know it. I mean, mm -hmm. I studied the man all my life, and he, he, he gave speeches here and there, but off the cuff. It was one speech he wrote down, the one speech he cared enough about to write on ahead of time. Basic fact, dozens and dozens of books on the and articles on the subject, nobody knows it. Why but did he care so much about that speech that he would spend so much time on it? Well, you know, the war has been going on for two years. Uh, it was a bloody, bloody war. You know, here we are in the middle of a war, and there have been 3,000 dead, and the country is up in arms over it. Well, in three days at Gettysburg, there were 50,000 casualties. There were 10,000 dead, 21,000 wounded. The country, Americans were sick and tired of it. Uh, anybody who, I was born into, I'm a native of Hungary. I was born into a war. I was too young to remember, but I participated as a kid in uh, the 1956 revolution against the Soviets. And then I went to Vietnam twice. Uh, I was teaching for the Air Force, 69 and 70. I know war. Anybody who, and, and, and I'm actually, I'm one of the few people who write about the Civil War who actually know war. But anybody who loves it, it's out of their minds. It's bloody, nasty business. And uh, I think people, people know it. By 1863, no, no, two years of war have gone on, no end in sight, no end in sight at all. The Battle of Gettysburg got people's hopes up, but the end wasn't coming at all. People are sick and tired of it. Every day after each battle, there would be front page of newspapers listing in each community who died, who is wounded, who is missing, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. Lincoln's job is somehow tell Americans why this war has to go on. That's why he, he comes here. Uh, well, we are not in Gettysburg, just close by. That's why he goes to Gettysburg. And that is why, at least one of the reasons, he goes for many reasons, and I don't claim to know 
what was exactly in his head, but you can attempt to understand it fairly well. Now, this, he gave the speech in November, and the battle was in July. Yes. Did, <coughs> did people by November appreciate, did they see the Battle of Gettysburg as being as important as we see it today? Not quite. I think almost immediately they're beginning to be a, it, 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 a sense that this is an important battle. The Eastern theater gets much more of the attention than the West. And in the East, you, the Union Army comes a, against the finest uh, un, uh, Confederate generals, above all Lee. And they lose battle after battle after battle. Gettysburg is the first real w victory. And so immediately there's a lot said about in the North. I do think, however, that November 19, the huge event that happens in Gettysburg, Everett giving a speech, Lincoln giving a speech, that begins to drive it into American consciousness that Gettysburg is the great battle. So the speech has a lot to do with it. Everett, who's the main speaker, has a lot to do with it. So for people who don't know, what, what brought them together? Why were they all in uh, Gettysburg in November uh, 1863? <coughs> well, let, let me begin with the beginning, how the book begins. Uh, you asked about the subtitle of the book. I did not know until I, again, wrote this book and studied it, that the battle left behind the biggest man-made emergency in American history. I simply didn't know it. And you have a town of 2,500 people left with 10,000 dead, uh, 21,000 wounded, three to 5,000 dead animals. The place stinks to high heaven. People come and as they're coming in, into town before they are able to see the steeples, they can smell the place. And the smell stays around for months. It's possible that people say that because it got so much into their heads that maybe the smell was dissipating, but people still smelt it. They felt they smelt it. But here's this huge disaster. People don't know how to cope with it at first. The disaster is so bad because both armies leave, take most of the medical personnel away. I counted heads carefully. And the book has two parts. The first part tells a story, and anybody can enjoy reading it, and a lot of people seem to be enjoying it. The second part is more for the buffs and the scholars. But I looked at, and it has all kinds of numbers and other information in there. There were 35 surgeons on the Union side who could operate. There are 21,000 wounded people. There are hundreds, there are thousands of people lying out in the open. No help, no, no food, no water. Flash floods come and people just float away because they can't move. It is, as I said, the biggest disaster in American history. And the local people have already been traumatized by the battle. And then they are left with all that. And uh, how, how do you get out of that? And well, whose job was it left to, to clean up? Well, theoretically, it was the job of the army, but the army left. The army left because they expected a major battle, and they were getting ready for it. And Washington's eyes were not on Gettysburg anymore. They were in the two armies. Lincoln, for one, hoped to finish uh, the war. He, wanted, he convinced me that another major battle is coming, and the army got ready for it. Of course, it never came. And, and, and uh, I mean, one of the less known facts of the war is that 
the biggest union army, the Army of the Potomac under Meade, does not fight again until the spring of 1864. Here's the biggest Union army, doesn't fight a major battle again. That's like eight, eight months? Eight months, eight months. Uh, so getting back, I'm not answering your question, so let me get back to it. Uh, the people finally pull themselves out of this huge depression and get together on an idea of, uh, of a national cemetery, a soldier's national cemetery. And it, it comes out of uh, Pennsylvania, the governor, Governor Curtin comes quite quickly there, sees this disaster. He attempts to help, but the federal government is not all that helpful. They don't understand what, what's happening. Their eyes are on the armies rather than the mess that's left behind. So Curtin appoints a young man, young lawyer named David Wills, who lives in the center of town, a prominent young lawyer, and he begins to organize what eventually becomes the Soldiers National Cemetery. It's a way of dealing with the thousands and thousands of, thousands of dead who are all over the county. The people went, went around burying the dead on uh, the battleground well, where they fell? Yes, right. Uh, the armies themselves were supposed to bury the dead and they did, did a lot of it. But, you know, these are people about to leave. They do it quickly. There are shallow graves, you have animals digging up bodies, uh, hogs and dogs and wild animals eating soldiers. Uh, it's, a, it's a disgraceful scene. And uh, often the graves are not marked. There is an attempt to deal with the dead respectfully. The, the war is so different from what Americans knew before. The war with Mexico was the great American experience. Well, major battles had a few hundred casualties. At Gettysburg, you have, you know, 10,000. And so the National Cemetery is, uh, is, is the way to deal with it. And the dedication comes about because the people want to make a lot of, of this, the local people. And the states who have dead around like the idea as well. And so the states support it, and it becomes one of the biggest public spectacles in American history up to that time. So the idea was to move the bodies from the battlefield to, to this planned cemetery? Ex yeah, exactly. Wherever the bodies were left, dig them up, take them to the National Cemetery. Could they identify them? That was not an easy job, but they made a good effort. They could not identify everybody, but they identified uh, the majority of the dead. It was a nasty job, digging up dead bodies, uh, poking into the bodies, attempting to find Id identifications. There were no dog tags in those days, although some people did put IDs on themselves. So it was not an easy job. If you go to a cemetery today in, in Gettysburg, a lot of unknown markers there. And a few uh, confederates were not supposed to get to the National Cemetery, but a few got in anyhow because of mistaken identities. How far along was the cemetery developed by the time they had the dedication? Well, you know, those of you who know the National Cemetery, it's a beautiful place, beautifully manicured. Well, in those days, it was a, you know, fresh graves, muddy, newly dug, not manicured. Uh, they did not finish taking all the bodies to the National Cemetery until the following spring, 
spring of 60, 1864. But there were a lot of them. There were over a thousand bodies by the time the dedication comes. Did they do anything like this at any other Civil War battle sites? Uh, there were other national cemeteries, but nothing like this. And certainly no huge dedication. This is the first cemetery where there's a big dedication. So people become aware of the fact that there is such a thing as a soldier's cemetery. So uh, David Wills, is that his name? Yes. Was he in charge of planning the whole program? The, yes. The, and so if you went and watched the ceremony that day, the dedication, what would you have seen? Well, perhaps before I answer your question, People coming from Washington, above all, a man named uh, Lamont, or Lemon, Lemon, a number of ways to pronounce his name. And I looked into the family, and the family itself pronounces the name in different ways. I'll say Lamont. In any case, Lamont is a close friend of Abraham Lincoln. He's the marshal of D.C., and he becomes the marshal of the ceremonies here at Gettysburg. And he gets together with David Wills, and he brings another person by the name of Benjamin French, who's also a functionary in Washington. And so there's some outside input from there. And also the states have delegates. They put an, have an input as well. But by and large, it is David Wills who organizes things. He, he deserves credit more than anybody else. And he's a young man, and he gets him, himself into trouble in many ways. Uh, the, the funny story I like to tell about uh, you ask, what is new in the book? Well, it's full of new stuff, but one, one, one element that uh, I was utterly unaware of is what happens in this town the night before the event. And what you have there is a huge all-night party. You have a town of 2,500 people again, and you have, you have a minimum of 16,000 visitors there. Many of them, probably most of them, have no place to sleep. So there's singing, bands playing, yelling, hollering, right into the morning. At the David Wills, the house of David Wills. Now he is the organizer, he gets for himself the most prominent guests. I imagine there were some people in town who didn't like it at all. But David Wills gets the main speaker, Edward Everett. He gets uh, Abraham Lincoln, he gets other prominent uh, visitors. He lives in a nice big house, but the house normally have five or the most six people living in it. Wills invites 38 people, and uh, including the president and Everett. Nobody has their own bed, much less their own room, except Edward Everett and Abraham Lincoln. Everybody else shared beds. Yeah, it was, of course, common for those days. We don't understand it, but, uh, you know, the most prominent people didn't think it, it, that's the way how it should be. In any case, uh, on the 11 o'clock night, the, at night, the governor of the state, uh, Governor Curtin, shows up. Wills is the man of the moment because the governor appointed him. And he invited the governor to stay there as well. The governor arrives at 11 o'clock at night. He's one grumpy man. He was supposed to have come five hours, hours and hours earlier, but his train broke down. It went back and forth. So here comes the man in charge of the state, grumpy, walks into the Wills house, would like to have his bed and his room. And just imagine a scene. Here are all these distinguished people in the parlor, living room, and the governor, grumpy governor comes in, asks for a place to stay. And every bed has at least two and maybe more people in there. And 
here's young Mr. Wilsh looks at the governor, looks at, I mean, looks at the governor, he needs a bed, looks at Edward Everett because he's one who is not sharing a bed, and Lincoln looks at Lincoln, looks at Everett, where do I put the governor? And protocol prevails, finally he puts, tells Everett, the governor is going to sleep with you. Well, <laughs> Mr. Everett doesn't like it at all. <laughs> he's 70 years old almost. He had a stroke earlier. He has a two-hour speech to make the next day for memory. And most of the point is he has a major bladder problem. He doesn't want to sleep with the governor. <laughs> the next day at the ceremonies, there's a special tent set up for Everett so he can go to their two-hour speech and do his business before. Uh, he doesn't want to sleep with the governor. The governor finally leaves. I still don't know where he slept, if anywhere. Uh, we know all this because Everett kept a diary, and he writes in his diary how he didn't get to sleep until half past 11, and then he could not fall asleep until the early hours of the morning. Here's an exact quote, fearing that the executive of Pennsylvania is going to tumble in bed with me. <laughs> <laughs> so I can imagine this old guy <laughs> can't go to sleep. <laughs> and then he also puts down, a, his daughter stays at the, House and his diary thought says, just simply, Charlotte slept with two other women. There were three in the bed. The bed broke, and sh so she betook herself to the floor. <laughs> so, <laughs> it was a circus that night. <laughs> uh, that night, Abraham Lincoln also uh, stepped to a window and said something to the crowd. Uh, actually, he got out of it. He 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 gone in the next house. Mr. Seward was saying his secretary of state. Seward was also Lincoln's backup. I found, he asked about unknown elements. I found a letter written by David Wills to Seward, the Secretary of State, asking him to be the speaker if the president couldn't come. Because the president was so busy, he could not, he did not decide until two days before the actual event to come. And Seward comes with a speech. In any case, he stays next door. Lincoln goes over there at night, in the evening, to talk to him. They are good friends. Chances are that he has the manuscript of his speech and he shows it to Seward. We don't know this for sure. We don't know what they talk about. One diary says that he stays about an hour. Another says he stays a half an hour. Whether it's a half an hour or an hour, they spend a lot of time together. As Lincoln steps up, there are thousands of people out there celebrating and they want speech, speech, speech. And Lincoln says, well, I don't have a speech. And uh, you know, being the president, I have to be careful not to make a fool of myself. And people laugh and somebody yells at him, if you can help it, I mean, not to make a fool of you. So it's an informal banter, banter back and forth. And later, the opposition press and even the London Times would take those comments and make that into the Gettysburg Address, saying Lincoln just went there me, and, and was joking instead of respecting the dead. You also write about another uh, d uh, discussion, a uh, uh, banter back and forth Lincoln had with some of the locals where he, was that when he arrived in town? Well, you have seen me and according to general expertise, you have seen less than you expected of me. People laughed and he went on. You had the rebels here last summer, didn't you? Yes. Well, you did fight them. Uh, did, well, did you fight them any? Lincoln was still joking, but people fell silent. No, so Lincoln, uh, this happens joke actually, flat. Yeah, sorry. This happens in Hanover. He's just about, he makes a short stop. 
And uh, Lincoln loves to banter with people. He loves to tell jokes. And sometimes they're not as appropriate as they might be. And this may be one example of it. And the press doesn't quite know how to handle it. And I pieced that story together by looking at different, there were quite a few reporters there. And they put out different uh, articles and I pieced together what happened there. Uh, he was making a bad joke. Lincoln was making a bad joke about fighting. Uh, Hanover saw real fighting and there were dead people in the local church cemetery. They didn't think it was funny. And uh, on the other hand, when Lincoln jokes and banters about in Gettysburg itself, people like it. People like that president to be one of them. And Lincoln is quite good at that. Now, you've mentioned a couple times Edward Everett. He was the, the, the main speaker that day, yes. spoke for two hours. Who was he? Why did they pick him? He's the most famous speaker of the day. He's, he, he's well known. Uh, he's from Massachusetts. Uh, he had just about every significant office you can think of. Uh, he's an ordained minister. He's a professor at Harvard. becomes the president of Harvard. He becomes a, the governor of the state. He's a congressman, a senator. He's the ambassador to London. And he runs for the vice presidential ticket against Abraham Lincoln. And uh, then he gives a two-hour speech, and people make fun of it because one of the most difficult jobs for a historian is, and most of us fail at this, is to not look at the past from the 21st century. We tend to tell the story from the time and go ahead from the story instead of looking at it backwards. Just about every book on the Gettysburg Address does that. Whether it's written in the 1940s or whenever, you look back from your own time and from your own views. And the consequence is people don't understand what happened, don't understand history. I'll give you an example. Lincoln goes from Washington to Gettysburg, and books would say he went at a slow pace of 25 miles an hour. Well, to us, it's a pretty slow pace. If you want to understand that in terms of 1863, what you ought to say is Lincoln went from Washington to Gettysburg at the amazing pace of 25 miles an hour. That, then you can put yourself back to that time. The same goes for the Everett speech. We make fun of it because nobody, you know, nobody makes two hour speeches anymore except Fidel Castro, and I guess he's going to quit now too. But think of a time when there's no television, no radio, no organized sports, no internet, no, not the, all, the, all the activities we have today. There are two major cultural activities for the time. One is religion, the other is politics. And at Gettysburg, in, at this event, actually, actually the two meet. Uh, Everett's speech is a great speech. It's not to be made, for, even academics make fun of it. You have the text of the speech in, yeah, in, in the appendix for anybody who cares to read it, there it is. And if you wish to understand 19th century speaking and oratory, you ought to read that. Uh, the New York Times reviewed my book, which is a great honor, but, uh, well, I, sh I shouldn't say this because the Times will get mad at me and they not review me again. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, the Times calls it a snore of a speech, a speech that will put you to sleep. And that may well be. But if you put yourself into the 19th century, it was the most exciting thing you could have. And people stand there holding their breath, thousands upon thousands, packed in like sardines, standing, not sitting down. 
and loving it. How, how many people out of those thousands of people could actually hear the speech? That's controversial, depending which newspaper reporter you, you listen to. Uh, some will say I could not hear it, and some would say all could hear it. These speakers were used to speaking to large audiences. Lincoln especially was good at this, but so was Everett. And so I would think that the majority of the people heard it quite well. Uh, Steven Spielberg is making a movie about Lincoln. And uh, I, I sat down with him for a whole day talking Lincoln. And he asked the same question you did. And there's not a single definite answer because newspapers say different things. Uh, and he said he's going to show the Gettysburg address in his film by showing a flag. And when the wind goes one way, people hear. When the wind goes the other way, people don't hear. It's a, it's a, and that probably actually happened. But the fact that those people, thousands upon thousands, listened carefully and stood there, a few people wandered away, but most people stood there. Whether it is 15,000 people, 25,000, whatever number you want to put on it, it indicates that they heard enough to make it interesting. And we haven't actually talked about Lincoln's speech yet, but before we do, I want to ask you a little bit about yourself. You said you're originally from Hungary? Yes. And what, what did you see in the 1856 uh, uprising? Well, you know, my middle son is a filmmaker, and he is making a documentary film about my life. It's almost finished, and the 56 is a significant part of it. I was a 16-year-old boy, and I, I, I participated in it. At 16, you think you have nine lives, and uh, I didn't like talking about any of this. I really never did, until my children grew up, and they just really pushed me around and want, wanted to know where on earth they came from. They're typical American boys. They grew up on a farm outside of Gettysburg. They're, all, they're fine young men, all making a good living. Uh, but they wanted to find out about me. And uh, so finally I got into it myself. I got into the spirit of it. So what happened in 56? Uh, the most traumatic event of the, for pers you ask me about personally, I, I get it. Mm -hmm. uh, I lived in a six-story building on a main avenue in Budapest, which is the capital city. Well, it's part of my, my time I spent in the country, but this was the main place we lived. Uh, we built a barricade front of the house, and the Soviet tanks came and took it and decided to punish the building. It was a huge building, and people lived in fairly crowded conditions. Everybody ended up in the basement. It was a large basement. People were packed in there. The Soviet tanks came and started shooting into the building. And uh, that's a, you know, right next to it, it's a distinct sound. You, you hear the cannons going thump, thump. It's a, and you begin to hear the building collapsing. And then down in the, this huge basement, uh, the lights go out and people are getting fairly antsy. And then all of a sudden, the rubble started coming in, and people thought the whole building collapsed. And I mean, in fact, the building did collapse, collapse above them, above them, should I say. Ah, so I mean, I was in there. And uh, it's fairly scary when a six-story building falls on your head. And 
when the rubble started coming in, people assumed that the whole ceiling fell in. There was a panic. There was only two small, call them doors, they were more like holes through which you could get out. And people were trampling on each other and it was panic. It was a nasty scene. And, uh, well, you know, I used to be ashamed or embarrassed about this, but uh, it's in going to be in the film, so everybody's going to know it. You stand there with, I have two siblings and my parents. And what goes through my head is that everybody's going to die here. My parents are going to die. My siblings are going to die. But I wasn't going to die. I was going to climb out of that rubble no matter what. I mean, it's, it's, it's this basic selfishness when it comes to life and death. That's in you. I mean, I love my siblings and my, and nobody died as it turns out, but that's the feeling that you have. And my dad, who was quite a man, he pulled us, there were some heavy columns holding up the ceiling, eh? pulled us under one of those beams. And, he, and we, we were the last people to leave that basement. And we stood under that, those beams because he said that will not collapse if, uh, what actually happened, everybody got out, nobody got hurt, the ceiling didn't fall in. There were two fair-sized door, doors in the ceiling, strap doors, and that's what the, the steel doors fell in, not the whole ceiling. But when we came out and the Soviet tanks left, it, what we ended up is the two sides of the building stood up. The middle collapsed. It ended up, it was like two sides up a V of rubble, and purely by chance, there was a piano teacher in that building. And on the th top of the rubble, there was a grand piano. It was just an amazing, poignant scene. My, my son, who's making this film about my life, attempted to find that photograph, and he couldn't. And you begin to wonder, do you imagine things? I'm quite careful about, in the book, I discount memoirs. But a number of people who, who interviewed remembered ex the same scene. And more than that, I saw that my house on a placard in Vienna, we eventually escaped from all this. And there were these big posters asking to help the Hungarian refugees. And it was the picture of my house with the piano on the top of it. Mm. <laughs> uh, now, how did you go from being a 16-year-old boy in Hungary at that point to being a history professor at Gettysburg College. I landed in New York City. Mr. Eisenhower brought, President Eisenhower brought 40,000 of us into the U.S. It was a different time. Now, they have millions and millions of illegal immigrants. Well, it didn't happen in those days. They picked 40,000 of us. The average age was 21. They were young people. Uh, and forgive the arrogance, but a lot of us made contributions to the United States. Uh, I, end up, I, I, I came in a U.S. Air Force plane, ended up in New York City. I was a bit bewildered by it. No, I liked to go to the city, but in those days it seemed like more than I wished to handle. Somebody said to me that if you like to see the United States, like to know the United States, it's out there in the West. So I, I ended up in Dakotas, and uh, in a small town called Yankton, South Dakota. And uh, the Lincoln Sesquicentennial was coming, and the, 
the sesquicentennial commission put out a small pamphlet of Lincoln's writings, some of the best. And I luckily picked it up. And I was learning English and began to read that stuff. And I said, now here's a guy who can speak the language. And I was hooked. Was Lincoln a good writer? Oh, he was, he was one of the best writers in English language. English is a beautiful language. But Lincoln was an absolute master of the language. Didn't write much. But the Gettysburg Address or the Second Inaugural, a few of his public letters, the masterpieces of the language. Uh, and uh, he, people ask, oh, he's, he's a miracle. Here's a man whose mother was illiterate. His father could sign his name when he was a young man. By the time he got to be 40, he had to put an X down. He forgot how to sign his name. Their son gives the Gettysburg address. Can you imagine the distance that that man traveled? Now, uh, the story we always hear about the Gettysburg Address is that he wrote it on the back of an envelope on the train on the way yeah, yeah. from Washington. How, how well, true is uh, that? Well, uh, that's, that's legend. And, and the last chapter, of the, the book attempts to put you back to eight, into 1863. So it goes from July after the battle through November and the reaction to a speech. But the last chapter takes the speech from 1863 to 9-11, to our own time. And, and, and I discuss how from generation to generation people look on the address differently, the legends that grew up, the one that you mentioned about the envelope, it's, it's still terribly dominant. I talk to people and, well, the US News and World Report had this wonderful story about this speech. In the introduction, they, they almost put the envelope story in there. And I, uh, it, it, it is dominant. It comes from a book that was written in 1906 by a woman named Andrews. The book's title is The Perfect Tribute. It's a tiny book. It's probably the most popul popular Lincoln book ever written. Assigned to students, high school students, year after decade after decade. And he tells, she tells the story. She got it from some others. No, there's no evidence at all that Lincoln wrote it on the way. I think the best evidence is that Lincoln wrote, Lincoln wrote half of the speech in Washington the night before he came, left it unfinished, arrived at Gettysburg, gone to the Wills House, and while outside, all this uh, you know, singing, hollering, and celebration going on, he sits in his room, he does have his own room, and he uh, writes the second half of the speech. The next morning, he goes out, sees the battlefield. He, has, he, has, he, he studied the battle carefully, but he realizes that being on the field is not quite the same as, as, as seeing it in person. So he goes on the battlefield, gets back to the house, sits down, makes a second copy of the speech. Rather quickly written, you can see, makes mistakes as he, as he copies it out of that he speaks. Did he have help with the speech? If he had helped, probably the only person who, and there's, this is a guess, an educated guess, probably he showed what he had that night to Seward, uh, the Secretary of State. And actually, Seward, who was the backup speaker, gives his speech on November 18. And uh, really similar ideas. 
but that's not because Abraham Lincoln is copying Seward or vice versa. The speech is not an original speech. What Lincoln does in that speech, he sums up for Americans what the ideas are, what Americans would, well, the book ends by saying, Americans are saying, this is who we are. Or perhaps a better way of putting it, this is what Americans hope to be. It's not original ideas. These are ideas that are around. But Lincoln puts them so beautifully. He sums up, it's, it, that's why I call it the, American, uh, the, the Gettysburg Gospel. He sums up the best of America, and eventually it becomes a, a, a sacred speech. Why does he start four score and seven years ago? It, did people talk like that back then? N uh, not so much so, but uh, he, the, he read that speech, it is the biblical language of the Bible. Lincoln goes up on the language of the Bible, and it's, uh, it, it, it comes from inside of the man. He, uh, he, he's a politician. There are political reasons for what he's doing. But he is also himself coming to terms with all this death around him. He really comes up from inside his guts. And the political aspect of it, he got to be conscious of it to some extent. He speaks to religious people, ab above all to evangelicals who are the anti-slavery people. And, and, and uh, the religious Christians listening to that speech hear the, word, he, the sounds of the Bible. It, they can shut their ears and, and just love it. That this is the beloved language. And you can read that speech as a religious speech. The new birth of freedom, depending who you are, might mean a born-again nation. But you can read that speech also as a secular speech. And the amazing part to me about the speech is that the religious folks might have rejected Lincoln for Lincoln not being religious enough. The language is religious, so you can read it as a religious speech. Lincoln is not a church member. His wife says he does not believe about an afterlife. Yeah, she he, says he was not a technical Christian. Not, not a technical, exactly. And his He's wife a, said he did not believe in an afterlife? Something of that sort. I mean, uh, she says all kinds of things, but she knows them. And I mean, they, they were married all these many years. And she's a religious p person. And she thinks her husband is not. He, cer he certainly doesn't join a church. I mean, that is no debate about it because that's a demonstrable fact. The fact that he does not use the name Jesus almost ever is again a fact. Uh, did he believe in an afterlife? Not that's more of an opinion. Uh, what I began to say is that religious folks might have rejected him because he is not a church member, but instead this speech speaks to religious people. On the other hand, the more secular people might have rejected him for all this biblical language, for being too religious, speaking about God and so on. It's the opposite. The more secular people claim him to. He's able to pull people together somehow. And that's one of the beauties of the speech. Now, when he got up to give the speech, uh, where was he on the program? Well, the, uh, the, there's music, there's an invocation, there's music, then Everett 
gives a two-hour speech, there's music again, and Dell Lincoln gets up and speaks. Uh, I defended Everett's two-hour speech. It was exactly what was needed. But still, after two hours, even in those days, people probably shuffled their own, tried to stretch limbs, relax a little bit. And then Lincoln gets up. I think people listen from the beginning because there's applause. There's some debate about the applause, but both the oppo opposition press reports applause as much as the Republican press does. And so uh, I think the applause is not, not is, is there. People listen. Lincoln is popular. Uh, but still, it's a two-minute speech. When it is done, there's silence. People wonder, is he really finished? But the man sits down, and then, then there's this thunderous applause. Did he speak from memory? I think he read it. Uh, it's not entirely clear. He did not have time to memorize it. My, Again, I'm really careful about what people remember because what people remember is often what didn't happen. And so the book is based on contemporary documents. But one, I do mention that one young woman who stayed in what today is called Lincoln Square in Gettysburg, stayed in the opposite house and looked into the window of the Wills house. And she saw Lincoln is the paper in his hand. So chances are he was practicing it while he was waiting for the, to come down and join the parade. But he didn't have time to memorize it. You have a couple things in your uh, appendixes, appendices I want to ask about. Uh, one is a question you have, did Lincoln extemporize? Right. Is there evidence that he was kind of throwing things in on the spot? I think so. And I think the most important uh, addition that he makes to his speech is two words, under God. And, and, uh, and I think uh, uh, he used biblical language, but he did not give a, a technically religious speech at all. It's, and he may have considered, considered it improper to mix God in, but in the emotion of the moment, he puts God in there. Just this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom. New birth of freedom, which of course refers to, above all, to the Emancipation Proclamation, but it, it's more than that. And indeed, I mean, judging from the reaction to the speech and how people understood it, depending what was in people's head, they could understand it this way or that way, and they did. Had the Emancipation Proclamation happened by the time yes, he gave the uh, speech? Yes. It's uh, January 1st, 1863, and now it's November 1863. Um, you also have in here uh, a report of what people read and heard, a sample, and you compare how it was reported <laughs> line by line in different newspapers. Right. Well, for me, one of the fun, there are all kinds of funny, funny parts. To, it's a serious book, but there are many times people go into laugh, and that is certainly one part where people go into laugh. Newspapers, newspapers marked it up amazingly. Uh, uh, Lincoln did not have, ever that gave his speech to the newspapers, so a printed version, so they could print it. Lincoln didn't have a speech to give. They asked for the, the papers, asked for the speech, but didn't have it. So they took it down by hand. When you take a speech down by hand, you're going to make mistakes. And uh, then you take it to a telegraph office. It has to be typed in by the tele telegraph firm. He's going to make mistakes. It goes from telegraph office to telegraph office. Mistakes accumulate. It goes to newspaper. You have to typeset by hand. 
more mistakes are added. Possibly editors shift a bit, shift around. So what you end up is, is, is amazing sometimes. Did the newspapers report it as an important speech at the time, or did it kind of take a while for people to realize that it was important? Uh, 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 the number of people who see it as a great speech at the time. You can count on one hand and you have a few fingers left over. Uh, the, uh, there are quite a few illustrations in the book, but one of my favorite ones is the New York Times. The New York Times does report the speech. It has a whole speech in there. Many papers don't. But there's not a single comment on it. And of course, they muck it up also. To, that, to some extent, it becomes unintelligible. Uh, Lincoln talks about unfinished work. Instead, uh, the New York Times talks about like it was a piece of furniture, refinished work. It makes no sense at all. But in any case, there's no comment at all. And the headline talks about uh, Lincoln makes a the president makes a speech, Seward makes a speech, Seymour makes a speech. It's just one of many speeches. It's not Big Daughter special. Nobody ever heard of Seymour's Gettysburg Address or who Seymour is. And the interesting part is that within an inch of that report in the front page of the Times, there is a big discussion of a speech by a preacher, a famous preacher of the time, the Reverend Beecher, and the headline says, great speech. Now there you have a, a great speech, not Lincoln, it's, it's the preacher. You also, uh, this uh, Lamont, who you mentioned earlier, yeah. you say, upon reading Lamont in the 1890s, another old Lincoln friend, Henry Clay Whitney, was delighted. I had supposed that the whole world except me deemed the Gettysburg speech the summum bonum of eloquence. I always deemed it rot. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it didn't catch fire right away. Huh? No, it didn't. Uh, I, I would say it takes about a generation. Uh, the immediate reaction is modest at best. When Lincoln dies, he's assassinated. He does become a demigod, the American saint. He becomes, I looked at 270 sermons given on his death. Not one of them I could find mentions the Gettysburg speech. It's possible there is some odd there that I haven't found, but the, the dominant image is it's not there. I, have a, I, I think I have the picture of the cover of uh, the published version of the sermon given at Gettysburg. And uh, that's, it's a good sermon. And it mentions what a good writer Abraham Lincoln is and gives four different examples of it. Guess which speech is not mentioned. <laughs> so it, it, at first, it, it, it is by and large, not entirely, I don't want to overstate it, but it's largely lost. As the years go on, it begins to get some steam. By the 1880s, it becoming important. By the 1890s, it's look, looked upon as a great speech. But I talk about sculptures put up to Lincoln. In the first 20 years after Lincoln dies, that 20 sculptures, public sculptures, put up to him. Eight, 18 of them he holds the Emancipation on his hand, Emancipation Proclamation. The first time he holds the Gettysburg Address is early in the 20th century. And then there are a lot of statues, a lot of sculptures put up, and it's the Gettysburg Address. In fact, some old statues in which he holds the Emancipation Proclamation in his hand now become the Gettysburg Address instead, because you don't know what, it's a document he holds. Was, was the Gettysburg area, or Pennsylvania in general, friendly toward Lincoln? 
I mean, and was what was the mood politically before the Battle of Gettysburg? Uh, Adams County split. It was half and half, and 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 uh, you know you can't blame people for not liking a battle coming to them. Some people complain quite strongly about the local people not being friendly. I don't think it's fully fair. You, you have farmer making a living, and the troops come and destroy, take clean yard completely, destroy your crops. Of course, you're not going to be happy or going to be friendly. Uh, but the Adams County was split. Just as Pennsylvania was fairly even. It was not, not clear-cut one way or another. It had a Republican governor, but it could have gone the other way. Did Lincoln carry Pennsylvania in 1860? Yes, Lincoln did take Pennsylvania. He took Gettysburg, the town, but he did not take Adams County. Did he take Pennsylvania in 1864? Yes. Pennsylvania is, Pennsylvania is important in both, both cases. In both cases, it's like this. It's, it could go either way. Now, it's not so different today. Now, you talked about um, a politician. Was it Rudy Giuliani who read the Lincoln Gettysburg Address at Ground Zero? Uh, actually, it was uh, Giuliani did and Governor Pataki did as well. And, and uh, that's how I end the book. I, I think it's a memo. It's attempts to show how the Gettysburg Address, how far came. It is what I call the gospel, the sacred document to Americans. And when the chips are down, when moments are tough, people turn back to it. And 9-11 is a good example. Uh, that's the speech that is being read again and again. Have you found other evidence through through the years of politicians using that speech to their political advantage? Sure. I, mean, the I, I think uh, whether you are a Republican or a Democrat and whatever is your persuasion, everybody not everybody, but most everybody wants to adopt Abraham Lincoln. The Gettysburg Address is the finest speech. And sure, it's used all the time. We had this commission coming out uh, about the war in Iraq, and they cited the Gettysburg Address. What does it mean? It defines America, or what America hopes to be, the government of the people, by the people, for the people. It talks about a new birth of freedom, New birth, we can always use that. I talk about how it's one of the basic human desires. And I'm not simply talking about the Christianity. I'm talking about it's universal. Each winter, every human being hopes for spring and a new birth. It's some of the, Lincoln had this snack for, for, for getting the most fundamental human feelings and, and doing it beautifully. You said a little while earlier in this interview that you you discovered Lincoln, a, a brochure in the sesquicentennial. What uh, what's so important about him that you have essentially devoted your career to studying him and the Civil War? We need heroes. I have nothing against Michael Jordan or whoever is the current great man, and I love to watch him make a basket, and maybe he's a fine man. But I think the culture needs more than that. We need somebody we can look up to. I don't mean simply a demigod, an impossible image, but a, a, a live human being, a, a flesh and blood, who makes mistakes, but who, who has amazing characteristics. And the United States has been just so lucky that 
when the chips were really down, when times got truly tough. There was a George Washington, where there was an Abraham Lincoln, where there was an FDR, and somehow this greatness came out. There are plenty of presidents who you may not want to have a cup of coffee with, much less a beer or whatever, <laughs> but uh, uh, there, there are these moments, and Lincoln is the best of them. What was so heroic about him? A man of deep decency, deep humanity, a man who can be a decent human being in extremely difficult times, when you are death all around you, when the existence of the United States is at stake, where freedom is at stake. And he leads with a steady hand. He is called all kinds of names. He's sometimes not heard, sometimes he's heard, but he leads the way the best can lead. What are the things about Lincoln now that people know that aren't right or that they ought to know that they don't know? Well, <laughs> he's not perfect. He makes mistakes. He does not go to his father's funeral. He claims that his wife is sick and that may be so, but still he doesn't go to uh, his father's sickbed and he's dying. So he, 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 there's plenty of things that you might object to. Uh, he makes mistakes, political mistakes, but in the end, he is the best of the best. And legends, that's just more legends that you want, would want to know, be beginning with the Gettysburg Address, written on a train, where he didn't. Uh, the legend is, well, the more scholarly people would now say that the book by Gary Wills, which is a wonderful book on Lincoln at Gettysburg, written in the early 90s, won the Pulitzer Prize, bestseller, and so on. The subtitle of that book is The Speech That Remade America. Well, it didn't. It took a, quite some time to, to, to be heard. It, the media, and, and, and Wilson's book is a fine book, and the two complement each other in many ways. I'm not being critical, but a lot of people believe that the, everybody heard the Gettysburg Address and, and saw it as this wonderful, amazing speech immediately. Well, they didn't. It took a generation or so before people, before those few remarks become the Gettysburg Address. I can go on to, to a lot of other legends, but there uh, are plenty of them. There are new Abraham Lincoln books published every year, but, but handfuls of them all the time. Uh, what more is there to be written about Abraham Lincoln? Or are they well, just returning old stuff? Uh, my, I, I gave some examples of new ideas in the book, but it's full of stuff that people didn't know. People who wrote about the Gettysburg Address in earlier books looked at the same half dozen or a dozen newspapers. My students and I looked at hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. Now we know what people in Iowa said or what in, they said in Utah, what they said in Minnesota, wherever. You get a quite different picture. Also, I think one of the reasons I became an American historian, I was always told to, to, to go into Central Europe, I spoke the languages, it'd be easy and so on, but I followed my instincts. That you can, you can look at it with a fresh eye. Give you a good example. It's a minor thing, but nobody have noticed it. Lincoln is sick when he comes to Gettysburg. He doesn't quite know it, he doesn't feel well, people say he doesn't look good. He's coming down with a mild version of smallpox. Well, smallpox is an infectious disease. I had the opportunity to speak with uh, 
Professor Caputo at the Persian Medical School uh, about his Penn statement. And uh, he's an infectious disease specialist. And we discussed how this disease gets, how it does it infect you. Simply just talking to you, it can reach you. Lincoln shakes hands with hundreds and hundreds of people. He has the smallpox. You wanted the item of it. Nobody asked that question. Nobody ever asked this question. What happened? You can write an original book by simply attempting to find out who was here in Gettysburg and how many came down with this smallpox afterwards. Lincoln did not mean to infect people, but he almost certainly did. When he goes back to Washington, he's sick for three weeks. And you can turn up constantly. You can ask new questions that people don't ask. Why did not people? It's a common sense question. Everybody knows he came down with the smallpox. It's a common sense question to ask. But why people don't ask it? Well, perhaps I did not grow up. I, I, Lincoln was all new to me. Maybe I can have an opportunity to look at it with a newer eye. If you could talk to Abraham Lincoln, what would you ask him? I would go on nonstop. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would ask him perhaps the, about this book that I could not answer with a hundred percent certainty. When exactly did you write a speech? I think I'm at 95 percent, but I would love to have the hundred percent. I'd love to have him say, yes, I wrote that at the Wills House in Gettysburg or whatever. We are not entirely sure, but it would be nice to be sure. I would ask, I would ask him, uh, about emancipation. I would ask him about the war. How, how did you handle 600,000 dead? That many people who held you responsible for. Uh, what would you have done differently? And so it goes. Do you have another book in the works? Yes, but I'm not ready to talk about it. And I'm still, you know, I'm, I'm on a book tour going from town to town. and. Uh, so this book is much on my mind still. And this is the book we've been talking about. It is Gettysburg Gospel, and we've been talking with its author, Gabor Borat. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.